0: Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Hummiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership, and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world, Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Insider Tips to Becoming a High Performer. Our guest today is Mark Efron. Mark is the founder and president of the Talent Strategy Group, enabling the most successful companies to elevate the quality and impact of their talent. Mark co authored the Harvard Business Review's best selling book, One Page Talent Management, often called the Talent Management Bible. His newest best selling book, which we're going to dig into, is Eight Steps to High Performance. Mark also co founded the Talent Management Institute at the University of North Carolina's Business School with more than 3,000 graduates. He's also been a senior talent leader at companies such as Avon, Aon Hewitt, and Bank of America. He earned an MBA from the Yale University School of Management and a BA in political science from the University of Washington, and was a congressional staff assistant. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today and sharing insights.
1: Thanks, Mary. Very happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Awesome. And I'd love to just ground us. So this is from your perspective. What might make navigating a career today different? or a little more challenging or anything in the context that you might wanna call out?
1: Sure, I think there are actually some good things, let's put in the category of different, some good things, and then I'll go into the challenging. In the good, I think there is such a wide variety of opportunities today, meaning there are fewer set career paths. Now, it used to be not too long ago, if you started off in tax, well, you're going to stay in tax. If you started off on as a bench scientist, guess what? That's your career. I think that the freedom and flexibility to move between careers now is far greater than it once was. I also think along with that, there is far less stigma associated with moving more frequently in your career. So again, not too long ago, if your career stints were less than five years each, then we cast a sideways eye at that and wondered what went wrong. Now, I think as long as there's a good career story, you can be someplace for three years and still have that be a perfectly legitimate length of time and just because of the ease of finding a new job or the ease of the internet we can see what's out there what's available to us far more easily than we could in the past so i think there's a lot of good things happening on the challenging side when we talk about managing a career i think a few things most companies are not particularly good at helping us do that most managers are not particularly good at this now that shouldn't be surprising because managers are supposed to be good at their job and their job isn't developing us necessarily it should be but they don't think of it that way managers aren't development experts and so a lot of folks are unhappy with their development because they expect someone should be developing them i think also and i bet we'll talk about this a bit more later companies aren't as transparent as they should be about where you stand and where you can go And so it's very easy to get outsized expectations about your future because no one's ever said either, yes, we think you can get there, here's the plan, or you're not making that path, therefore try to do something else. I think finally, on the challenging side, we as individuals don't take as much accountability as we should to manage our own development. You cannot rely on your company to develop you. Some companies might be great at doing this. You're very fortunate, but you really need to take personal responsibility to say, how can I advance myself quickly and successfully without necessarily relying on my organization to do that for me?
0: Gosh, there's so much there on the positive side. I love what you said. This freedom and flexibility is different. There's so much you can do cross-functionally, globally. And you talked about the breadth and the depth that you want to get in your career. And that's amazing. And also you mentioned the timing, the pressure. You're seeing the pressure on you have to move every so often is less than it used to be.
1: Yeah. I think there's probably two sides to that. One is that you can move more quickly if you choose to, as long as there's a good story connecting those parts. So if I see a resume and someone's had three different jobs in nine years, I'm curious. Okay. So you weren't interested, hopefully not interested in staying at those companies for more than three years. Hey, just tell me the story. Maybe it's, I love building stuff and building stuff normally doesn't take more than three years. So I just keep moving from one place to the next so I can build more stuff okay, cool, that story makes sense. But there does need to be a good story linking it. If it was, well, I got bored. Oh, they didn't want to invest in me. Then I start wondering, okay, what's actually underneath that? But for most folks, what this means is the time that you need to be in a particular organization can be far less than it used to be. I just want to understand what does your career journey look like? How purposeful have you been in those moves?
0: I love that. And you also mentioned, so the visibility of what's possible, the opportunities that exist externally has become more transparent. And so companies have done more to make sure it was always a complaint. And people always said, I don't know what's open or what roles are possible in my own company. And that would be a real disadvantage for a company. But also that openness to the kinds of experiences and capabilities, skills, skills, for each job seem also just, again, more open to different kinds of backgrounds and experiences than narrow skill sets.
1: Yeah, I think companies have finally recognized that, Good talent truly is scarce and that there are likely folks within your organization who you think positively about who could do a different job than they are in right now if you are willing to invest a bit in making them good. I would much rather take a really smart, capable person who fits perfectly with my culture and try and put them into another part of the organization where they might not have deep expertise, than guess on a candidate from the outside on both the culture fit piece and the competence piece. I think companies recognize, hey, it's tough to find good folks. And they're just being more open to saying, hey, Susie's really smart. She's done those four big experiences. That suggests to me she could probably figure out how to do this fifth one, even though that's not normally what she does. And again, we're not talking radical shifts or social worker, and then you become a bench scientist, but kind of within the same company, maybe you were great at finance, but you were also, you really understood the business well, and you stepped into a sales role easily.
0: I love that. I mean, my own personal journey has been full of mixing it up every which way I could. And along the way, that builds an enormous amount of confidence, because you realize you can do a lot more than that narrow path. On the other side, Mark, you talk about the two big ones, the coaching skills of managers and leaders in this space is the journey. And that's essentially what the role is, but you're right. We're not always great at it. And I'd call it career empowerment, but f- people feeling like they're really empowered to drive their own career. And regardless of how good the company is in supporting you or your manager, it's your journey and you've got to lead for it, really. But I love that you put both those out there.
1: I would much rather get my career advice from the person who's best at that job anywhere, not just my boss. My boss might be fine. My boss might not be fine. I might not even know if they're good or not good at their job. But I would much rather say, if I want to be the best tax attorney, who's the best tax attorney out there? I'm going to go reach out to her or him and see if they'll have a cup of coffee with me. And talk about their career i'm likely to get far more guidance there than if my boss is an okay tax attorney so one of my pieces of advice to anyone who wants to understand how do i move farther faster along a path that's likely to make me successful is go talk to the absolute best person in your field I also guarantee you, most people who are successful are happy to help other people be successful. Just make sure you let them know you're not looking for a job. You're not trying to sell them anything. You're not going to waste their time. You're just trying to become as good as they are, and you would love any career insights they can give you.
0: You're absolutely right. It's more often than not, they're loving this and wanting to do this. It's just up to us to go for it and ask for it.
1: Yeah, I would guess in your many former CHRO roles, if you had gotten an email from a young HR staffer saying, Hey, Mary, I, uh, I saw you at a recent conference, was really impressed with how you talked about HR and et cetera. I'm trying to figure out what the best way is to advance in my career. Would you spend 15 minutes on me and a quick call? I almost guarantee you'd absolutely. say, absolutely. So I think people need to be less concerned that people will reject them and just ask. Again, I'd better get the advice from the smartest person in the field than someone who simply happens to be one layer above me in the company.
0: I love it. Mark, so the most recent book, Eight Steps to High Performance, clearly full of a lot of insight on what it takes to be a high performer. One quick question before we jump into it. Are these steps relevant for any career level?
1: There's never a bad time to apply these steps, but I really wrote the book for people who were younger in their careers to help them understand there are actually some scientifically proven ways to be a higher performer to make your career growth easier. Now, those Tactics apply whether you are 20, 40, or 60, because they're all based on the greatest science. But what really drove me to write the book originally was thinking about people who are entering the working world and the challenges they're naturally going to face in figuring out how do I win at work? And it just seemed a little bit unfair that we have all this great knowledge. There's a ton of science that tells us almost exactly what to do, yet we never tell anybody. Oh, they'll learn through the school of hard knocks. Well, that sounds like a horrible school to attend. I don't want to attend that school. I want the school of easy paths. So why don't we simply say, I can't guarantee you that all of this is going to work easily, but I'm at least going to let you know there are things that are guaranteed to make you more successful at work. Here's what they are, and here's how to easily apply those. So
0: does one need to have... A desire to be a high performer, like the mindset and the desire first? Does everyone want to be a high performer? How does that ambition side or that aspiration side fit in?
1: I love the question, Mary. The good news is you don't have to be a high performer. People live wonderful lives, work well in their community, are great husbands, wives, sisters, brothers, sons, and daughters without ever being a high performer. High performance is in many ways a choice. It's a choice to say, I'm willing to invest in a way that will allow me to advance that work. And it's a choice that there's probably a mindset underlying that. I write a little bit about this early in the book. It's a mindset that's likely governed with three principles, starting with, I recognize I'm likely going to work harder than other people. Now, that sounds, at least sounds to me, relatively uncontroversial, yet I hear a lot of folks say, Essentially, how dare you suggest that I work hard? I work smart. Well, working smart is lovely, but what are the odds that you're going to work so much smarter than everybody else around you that you can do less work and still be equally successful? You're going to have to work incredibly smartly. More importantly, oftentimes when I hear people say, oh, I'm going to work smart, they'll say, because I'm not one of those people who hangs around the coffee machine talking to people, or I don't sit around and engage in office gossip. I save all that time by not engaging. Well, what I hear is, I'm not someone who engages with other people in a way that builds and supports the culture of my company. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like a great path to high performance. Not that you need to stand around the coffee machine and gossip, but if you say, well, I'm really efficient, well, that's great, but being efficient is part of what allows you to be a high performer. It's not all of what allows you to be a high performer. Connecting with others formally and informally is the other magical ingredient. And to the extent you're dialing down on that to say, I work smart, you're probably not working quite as smartly as you think you are.
0: Exactly. So let's talk about the eight steps. So what are some of the eight and tips?
1: Sure. And to your point, Mary, these are universally applicable because these are based on the absolute best science of human psychology and and individual performance. To write this book, I read through about 2,000 academic articles that each claimed they had some impact on performance at work and sorted through all those to figure out, well, what had the best body of proof. Where was the most solid proof about performance? And that's where the eight steps came from. So this is not, well, there was a survey done and you might want to try X. This is the rock solid proof. And it starts with step one, which is set big goals. Now, a lot of us have heard that many times, oh, we should set goals. Goal setting is important. But the psychology underneath setting big goals is incredibly powerful. The, the science is very clear. The bigger goals we set, the harder we try. The harder we try, the more likely we are to succeed. It sounds like something mom and dad would have told you. Mom and dad were right. The science is very, very clear. And what I encourage people to do is think about next year at work. Whether you're on a calendar schedule or another schedule, what the next year looks like, and ask yourself, what would it take to deliver twice next year what you delivered this year? What would it take to deliver twice? Now, people may say, well, Mark, that is an absolutely ridiculous question. I'm already up to my eyeballs. I could probably deliver 5% more if I was lucky. But just think through it. What would need to change? What behaviors would you need to modify? What work would you need to delegate? How would you need to manage your staff differently? What skills would you need to build? What would it take? Without increasing hours, so the easy answer isn't all work 24 hours. Working the same 8, 10, 12 hours that you do now, what it take to deliver twice? Because just the discipline of thinking through that, I guarantee there are things that can be done, whether it's changing how you behave, how you manage others, how you organize your work, stopping some things that you're doing that will allow you to at least get 20% more out of your own performance next year without having to dial up the hours. So the science is unbelievably clear. Setting big goals works. The other key there is set a few. My company does a lot of work with big organizations around the globe, helping their managers to set goals. And the most common challenge is, oh, yes, Mark, I set goals. Here's my list of 20. Well, you can't have 20 big goals. And we're probably talking about our activities, not real goals. So when you're thinking about setting goals for yourself, what are the two, maybe three big deliverables, big promises that you're going to make to your organization? So step one, set big goals. That's awesome. How about number two? Number two, the second most powerful thing you can do. The chapter is entitled Behave to Perform. And what does the science say? The science says there are actually a few different routes of behavior that will allow us to be a high performer. So the key is understanding there's not one best path. For your behaviors to be a high performer, but the science is also really clear that it's not focusing on your strengths that you should do. It is actually focusing on what could be your weaknesses or what we tend to call derailers. A derailer is just what it sounds like. It's something that will take your career off the tracks The good news is these derailers are predictable because they are based on our core personality. In many cases, they are simply our strengths turned up too high. And once we understand that, we can turn that dial back down. So when we talk about behaving to perform, we emphasize how do I understand what's likely to get in the way of me being successful, recognize that, and work to eliminate it. In fact, in the book, we actually have a quick little survey on derailers written by the world's leading personality scientist, Dr. Robert Hogan. So you can actually read that, take the quick little survey, and understand where are you more likely to derail. So the key here, and it goes against a lot of the popular literature, it says, oh, just focus on your strengths. Well, focusing on your strengths is great if you just want to be good at what you do today. If you want to move up or you want to move over, you'll need different strengths and you'll also need to eliminate anything that's dragging behind you. Those are your derailers. So step two, behave to perform, focus on what might trip up your career, not trying to make your strengths even better.
0: Most of us have had the experience of when the strength becomes too high and then gets in your way and you've got to believe that you can just pull it back because it's scary to let go of a strength, but it's a dial back that you need and balance.
1: Absolutely. I'll take one of my own. On the There's an instrument called the Hogan Assessment, and it assesses your derailers. It has 11 categories. One of those categories is called skeptical. Now, a little bit of skepticism is a good thing. In fact, I've made my career being skeptical of claims that are presented to me, so I dig into them, and I learn more, and I counsel companies on that. But now, turn that dial up really high. Turn the skeptical dial up to 11. And how do I behave? Well, Mary comes into the meeting room and says, hey, Mark, I've got some cool research. Where'd that research come from? I've seen other research. Did you work a long time with that research? Who was your source for that research? Oh, these numbers look wrong. When you get too skeptical, all of a sudden you're just a bit of a jerk. And so a little bit of skepticism, incredibly helpful. Or if you understand where that optimal point is, Fantastic. You know, being a, a careful consumer, challenging that, that doesn't make sense, those are all good things. Turn that dial up too high. People don't want to work with Mark. That means it's going to derail his career.
0: How about number three?
1: Number three, grow yourself faster. This goes to what we were speaking about earlier, taking accountability for your own career. A lot of us, because we went to university, maybe got a a graduate degree, we rely heavily on education as the primary way to grow ourselves. And that's natural because we spent 12 or 16 or more years doing that. But the science is really clear. Once you have that base of knowledge, once you have kind of the core knowledge in your field, it's the experiences that you have, the quality, the variety, the diversity, the challenge of those experiences that actually grows you most quickly. And so if you want to be a high performer and grow yourself faster in your career, the key is to think about which experiences do I need to accelerate my growth? Now, an experience may be a job or it may not be. It might be, I need to work internationally. It may be, I need to manage in a turnaround environment. It may be, I need to manage with a really big, complex team. It might be something with the Inger function. So let's say you're in the audit function. I need to audit a small part of the organization. I need to audit where I think that people are lying about the books. So... It could be within your function, you gather those experiences, but the more quality experiences you gather, the faster your career is going to progress. Think of these like entries on your resume. A good entry in your resume likely states, I had this really meaningful experience that you're going to care about reading my resume. You should be thinking about your career progress the same way. What are the few most powerful experiences I can get to speed my career along And to our earlier conversation around asking an expert, I would do the same thing. I'm in the HR field. What would I do? I would find the four best CHROs and say, hey, Mary, which experiences do you think were most valuable in your career? I'm a young, growing HR leader. Which experiences do you think I should have? There's plenty of insights out there that you can draw from to figure out which experiences will speed your career along.
0: That's awesome. You're right. It's the self-awareness on that of what do you really need. And a bit of self-direction because a lot of times in your career, others will move you where they want you to go versus you taking that ownership.
1: And I think that that's a great point. In some organizations, well, I think most organizations, you are an asset that they want to deploy where it's Mm -hmm. best needed. Mm -hmm. Now, in many cases, that might align with exactly what you want to do. Fantastic. But what if it doesn't? You need to understand, given your career goals, which experiences matter most, because you might be able to say, if Mary comes to me and says, hey, Mark, I'm going to move you to the the UK job, I might say, hey, Mary, that doesn't sound like it's much of a cultural stretch. I know there's a job open in Singapore. Can we talk about that as well? So if you have a proactive view of how to manage your campaign, you're going to be in a much stronger position to advocate for, hey, I'd really like the Singapore rule. Tell me, do I fit? Do I not fit? If I don't fit, what should I do to become a better fit? Then you're in control. Again, some companies are brilliant in helping people out with this, but I wouldn't rely on that being the case. Tell us about number four. Number four, connect. Connect. Now, as an introvert, even writing this chapter scared me because the science is unbelievably clear that the better relationships you have with people, the higher performer you're going to be. And the heart of the connect chapter says you need to do two things really well. One, you need to connect well with your boss. Now, that makes a lot of people nervous. Well, what do you mean? I need to be a suck up. No, you don't need to be a suck-up, but you need to treat your boss like a human being. And human beings sometimes like having cups of coffee with other human beings, or they like talking about their weekends, or they like being complimented. They like being treated like a normal person. And I think sometimes, and this could be cultural as well, feels like it could be power distance between you and the boss. But the science is very clear, the stronger relationship you have with your boss, the faster you move up in the company and the higher performance ratings you receive. Actually, the science says even if you're not a strong performer, you get higher performance ratings if you have a good relationship with your boss. Not a good long-term strategy, but it just says how powerful those relationships are. So interact with your boss the same way you'd interact with someone who you're trying to build a friendship with. You're going to reach out to them occasionally. How are things going? Hey, we should grab lunch. These are things that just naturally build strong, productive relationships. So manage your boss, number one. Number two, actively manage your peers. What does actively manage your peers mean? In the book, there's a chart that literally allows you to manage and kind of chart those relationships. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Bob. What does he do? He is the audit person for Asia. When was the last time I talked to him about something other than work? Oh, it's been four months. Okay, so I haven't talked to Bob in four months, and I rate my relationship with him as a three out of five. Okay, well, that's not a good number. Now, let's do that for all of my peers. Anyone on that five-point scale that I rate less than a four, I should be reaching out to immediately and saying, hey, Bob, we have not had a chance to catch up. Would you mind a 20-minute conversation on non-work-related stuff? Again, introverts are scared of asking that question. Most people love talking about themselves. And so if you ask them, hey, you got some time, that they're happy to do that. Because peers can't necessarily move you up the organization, but they can prevent you from moving up in the organization. So the step- Four, around connecting. Actively manage your boss, just like you'd manage any other friend. The second part of that is actively manage your peer relationships. Rate them. Five, four, three, two, or one. Anyone less than a four, reach out to today.
0: Love that. How about number five?
1: Number five, maximize your fit. This is one that can be tricky to do because... We don't recognize that companies change faster than people change, meaning companies' strategies are evolving more quickly than they ever have. I I work with a lot of Silicon Valley companies where they might move through strategies on 18-month cycles, and they're going to need different things from people as they move through that cycle. We need to be aware of where is my company going and what does that imply for the capabilities they're going to value the most do i have those capabilities if i don't how can i quickly build those capabilities maximize your fit means you always want to be seen as a perfect fit for the future of the organization being a fit today that's lovely but if the organization says we're going to move into away from products and into services okay great what do i need to do in my part of the business to be seen as a brilliant asset in a service-based business and I have a little chart in the book you can map out your company and even map yourself against that to see where do you naturally fit the key there is just being aware where is my company going where is the industry going what am i best at and what might i need to change given the trajectory of the organization
0: i really love this because you know the pace of change is crazy and what companies need ahead there are big gaps in some of these skills and capabilities and so someone who really figures that out can just run straight up the field. And I think it's sometimes surprising how many people don't go and just check out their company's strategy, because right in there are this is where we're going, and these are the capabilities and skills we're going to need, or it's all available somewhere. And then to find that advantage to really go where the puck is going is what you're saying.
1: I love your point. One of the things that we do in a lot of the classes that we teach for HR leaders is ask basic questions like, can you give me the three strategic planks of your company? And we almost always get blank stares. And then we'll project on the screen a clip from a most recent investor presentation where it lays out one, two, and three. Where'd you get that, Mark? From your website. All that information is out there. And let's say it's not. Maybe you work for a private company. Great. So then go to the individual level above your boss and simply ask the question, three years from now, what are the three things that are going to differentiate someone who is a perfect fit with this company's strategy? They're going to have a point of view on that. Ask a number of people so you kind of consolidate and prioritize what you hear. But just ask the question, I know what fits today, but three years from now, what are you going to be looking for in someone who's a high performer or a high potential?
0: And maybe... They can also comment behaviorally. So there's the skills, you know, the hard side, but that they have a sense the type of leader is changing or the behavior and the culture is going to look like this.
1: Great point. It might be, hey, we're moving from command and control to really engaging employees and trying to get more out of them by getting them excited about their work as opposed to giving them a bigger paycheck. Okay, that might be a fundamentally different way of managing. Well, get ahead of that. Take a class, get a coach, read a book, whatever you think is going to help you to get better at that. Once you know the target, it's easy to get there. The challenge is most of us don't ever ask, where are we going? And you're never going to make the journey if you don't understand the destination.
0: And it takes time. I mean, you know, look, that example, if one was 20 years into their career and they were in a command and control way of operating, and let's face it, it's changing, you've got to build new muscles and you got to learn a different Mindset, skill set, and that isn't going to happen overnight because you've relied on a different one. So it takes time to build that.
1: Well, I find oftentimes it's a question of skill versus will. And oftentimes people think about their behaviors. Oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. It's going to be very difficult for me to change. Well, I'm a behaviorist at heart. And my view is any of us can show any behavior at any time if we really want to. And so the question is, what is it going to take to make you really want to show that behavior? Behavior change can be tough if we don't like the behavior that we're moving into. So part of the opportunity is to say, hey, you're going to be even more successful if you show these new behaviors. You've been performing great for 20 years. Going forward for the next 20, you're going to need to move a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right because we're adjusting the behaviors that constitute winning here. And sometimes they hear, well, you know, 20 years, they're like 45. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, the science is actually really clear. Anyone can behave any way they want to at any time if they really want to. And sometimes to prove that, I'll use the what I call the Powerball test, which is this happens a lot when I'm talking about having difficult conversations with people. Well, I don't really want to have that conversation with Bob. I'm not really ready, not really trained Okay. Well, I know you don't want to have the difficult conversation with Bob. I think you said you need some additional training. I happen to have this week's winning Powerball lottery ticket in my hand. It's about a half billion dollars. I'm willing to give you this half billion dollar lottery ticket if in the next five minutes you can go have that difficult conversation with Bob. Are you able to do that? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, then it probably wasn't a skill issue. It was probably a discomfort issue. Let's get you over the discomfort of having those conversations or over the discomfort of trying a new skill. And that might be psychological safety, making sure that people understand that you're going to have a little bit of latitude for failure but the key around maximizing your fit is understanding the wonderful and perfect you might not be a lovely fit for every single situation and as the situation changes you might need to change that wonderful and perfect you into a slightly different version
0: i really like that the comfort comes from practice the more those conversations you have or whatever it is you think your skill isn't perfect in the more comfortable you become and the better your skill becomes, but you got to jump in the pool.
1: I mean, think about anything that anyone is good at today. The first time you did it, you probably were not. You probably stumbled. You probably looked stupid occasionally doing it. Great. You're good now. Why? Because you've had rounds of practice and that's what it's all about. The more rounds of practice you get, the more quickly, the better you're going to get.
0: You also raised this ability and willingness, which is so key. I mean, I always four box it when you're looking at a change because someone could be, you have the skill and the willingness, you're all set. You're willing, but you don't have the skill. Okay. You have a gap and you're going to get there, but you can't change a lot if you're just not willing. Even if you have the capability, You got it has to start from, I want this. And then from there, you can work it. How about number six?
1: Let's talk about step six, which is my favorite step. And it's my favorite step, because it seems to elicit the most screaming when I give presentations on the eight steps. What is step six? It screaming is in a good
0: way, it. screaming they don't like oh, it. No,
1: screaming in a how dare you say that uh, Oh, way. okay. Because step six, the title is fake it, and I use those words very specifically. People like to try to modify the title. Well, don't you mean adjust your behaviors, Mark? No, I do not. I mean fake it. What does fake it mean? Fake it means that it is likely. That no matter how special and wonderful any of us is, there may be situations where you need to display a fundamentally different behavior than the one that you're comfortable with in order to succeed in that situation. Let me give you a few examples. The science is clear that there are two ways people approach a new situation. One way that people approach is they approach the scientific label, they call it chameleons. You approach as a chameleon. What does that mean? It means I walk into a conference room where there's a group of people and I look at that group and I think, what do they need from me in order for this to be a successful meeting? So I'm always thinking about my environment, the other variables there. What might I need to do differently? How might I need to show up to make sure we get to a good outcome? So chameleon is one way I can show up. The other way is as a bull. A bull simply comes into the room, I'm here, it's all about the bull, let's get started. Science is clear, chameleons are far more successful. The challenge is that there's been a lot of talk, a lot of books, a lot of webinars and TED Talks over the past 10 years about being authentic, and people get very wrapped into, well, I need to be the authentic me. Well, if you're always authentic, then you're likely going to be also frequently wrong because it would be odd if your authentic self was the perfect fit for every single situation that you face. And so, what the Fake It chapter says is look, you're going to find scenarios where you need to show up as a different you than maybe your authentic self thinks it should be, or what you think is the right way to behave based on your experience. But that is necessary for you to be a high performer in that situation. A great example is that it's proven that we move through two phases in our leadership journey. We need to first emerge as a leader, and then we need to become an effective leader. Now, how do you emerge as a leader? Well, you tend to do two things well. You tend to call attention to your own work, you wave your hand around a bit to to be noticed, and you tend to build great relationships with others. Now, Someone might say, well, that sounds like sucking up, and I'm kind of an introvert, so I don't really want to build all those relationships. Well, then that is decidedly going to slow your progress in growing as a leader. You might need to fake being the person who calls attention to their own work. In that next meeting you have, you might need to, as uncomfortable as you would be doing it, raise your hand and say, hey, I wanted to talk a bit about Project X and how well that's going. You might need to set up coffee dates with five of your peers, even if you don't particularly even like those individuals, just to make sure people get to know you more. You might need to fake being that emerging leader. Even if you say, well, I don't think it's the right thing to do to suck up to my boss. Well, guess what? Have a cup of coffee with your boss, talk to her or him, get to know them. You might feel fundamentally uncomfortable engaging those behaviors, but they are the right behaviors at that moment. Let's say, though, you are brilliant at being that emerging leader. You love calling attention to yourself. You're perfect at building relationships. And because you're so good at that, you're now promoted and you have a team beneath you. Well, now you need to be an effective leader. You need to inspire others and draw attention to the good work of people on your team. You might need to fake being that effective leader? Because what you really want to do is you want to speak first at team meetings. You want your ideas to come out. You still want to be the center of attention because that's a lot of fun. You might need to cover your mouth at team meetings. You might just sit in your hands so you're not calling attention to yourself. You might need to fake being that effective leader. So the key is how badly do you want to be a high performer? Are you willing to fake a absolutely fine behavior that you simply don't feel comfortable with. One more quick example. I do a lot of public speaking oftentimes to very large groups, and I'm not naturally a great public speaker. I don't think I'm naturally that engaging or warm or any of the things you want to see in a public speaker. But I also recognize that that's what audiences want to see. And so if I'm about to go on stage and there's a big group out there, what I think about is I think about a gentleman, you know him, Mary, named Marshall Goldsmith. And Marshall Goldsmith is one of the world's most famous executive coaches, probably the warmest, nicest, funniest, sweetest human being you would ever meet, and brilliant on stage. Warm, engaging, just makes you incredibly happy. And so when I'm about to go out and do a speech, and I just don't feel with it that day, I don't think, what would Marshall Goldsmith do? I think, be Marshall Goldsmith. And I walk out on that stage, and it's, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. How's everyone doing today? Now, that's not me. That's Marshall Goldsmith. But guess what? For that one hour on stage, I deliver what that group needs by basically putting on an actor's face and say, I'm going to play Marshall Goldsmith. I'm going to push my content through that. But I'm going to be someone who I'm fundamentally not for that one hour. Now, when I step off that stage, I'm not Marshall Goldsmith anymore. This is not about becoming a fake you. It's understanding when are the moments that matter where you need to display a fundamentally different behavior
0: how about number
1: 7 step 7 is all about what can we do with how we manage our own bodies to be more effective at work and this was an interesting one to research when i was researching this topic i went in assuming i would find great research that says that exercise is the key to high performance if you exercise if you're in great shape that will drive your performance and i looked and i looked and i looked And I didn't find anything that had a direct link between exercise and performance. But as I was reading all these articles that said, well, something you can do with your body that drives higher performance is, the answer came out, sleep came out loud and clear as the single most powerful thing that any of us can do to lay the foundation for all the other steps we've just talked about. If you aren't managing sleep well, then it's going to undercut your ability to do those other things. And the challenge that I found was there is so much variety of information about sleep, it's very easy to get confused. And I think the key thing for your listeners to keep in mind is that quality and quantity are two very different elements of sleep. It's the quality that matters much more because when we don't get high quality sleep, it undercuts what are called our executive functions. So things like strategic thinking and creativity and teamwork, kind of the stuff that makes you truly successful. Low quality sleep just undercuts those. Low quantity affects basic things like where are my car keys and I forgot my colleague's name. So quality matters much more than quantity. The good news is that scientists have studied over and over and over again, how do you get high quality sleep? A lot of folks have heard this advice. We don't all follow it. Quiet room, dark room, cool room, little device reading ahead of time, as few disruptions, meaning not as many dogs and cats on the bed as you might normally have, those things allow higher quality sleep. On the quantity side, they've also done a lot of studying, and the challenge I found is the answers are all over the place, kind of six hours to 10 hours, but the sweet spot seems to be about six and a half to seven and a half hours of quality sleep, and you're absolutely prepared for high performance the next day. Awesome. And how about number eight? Number eight really says, we've just talked about seven scientifically proven steps that are guaranteed to make you a higher performer do those before you grab onto whatever fad you just read online that says, Oh, no, if you just take these fruit pills, you'll be a higher performer. Or, you know, it's, it's all about having the right mindset. It's so easy to get distracted because easy solutions come along that appeal to our view of the world, the way that things should work, but that aren't grounded in science. And they distract us from the things that are proven to be effective. So step eight is all about how do you avoid the fads that are out there? How do you focus on the few things that are scientifically proven to work? So the title of the chapter is Avoid Distractions. And what it really says is be a careful consumer. When you hear things that sound too good to be true about how you can be more effective, It probably is. Look for science. Is there's incredibly strong science underneath this? Or is this one person's story about what they did and now they think that you should do it as well? So step eight, be a careful consumer. Turn your critical dial up a little bit higher to say, is that really proven? Or is that just somebody trying to make a buck?
0: Mark, you've been a talent leader, talent management leader at the top of many companies. So you know what goes on behind the curtain. So how people get selected or promoted or what it takes to advance. What might you share? What's a little bit of insider knowledge that you think people may not know about, but it's really important to navigating a career?
1: I think there are a few things that are really important to know. And I think companies should be more transparent. About these things. And let's start with the fact that you are talked about far more openly and honestly in talent review and evaluation conversations than you ever imagined. If your company runs a typical talent review conversation, people talk about your strengths and your weaknesses and what they've observed. And it's not just what you think, oh, that project was good. That project wasn't good. It could be, you know, I was in a leadership course with that person. They asked two really smart questions and I'm really impressed with how they think. Or it could be, I was in a leadership development course, that person, they asked two idiotic questions. I don't know what they're thinking about. So everything you do is in your, let's call it permanent record. So don't think it's simply about, well, I delivered X, that's what matters. Everything you do goes into how people assess you and assess your potential future in the organization.
0: I'd add on that example, I've been in somewhere this day and you know what, Mark was great, but he was partying all night in that course and then he showed up late each meeting or even that stuff that you may think is outside the day to day. No, it's
1: all in. Absolutely, just to, I'll double down on that, especially now that we're hopefully appropriately more sensitive about how we interact with other people. I've heard conversations recently, hey, at that team meeting, he seemed to be leaning a little bit too close to that woman. You could tell her she was uncomfortable even though she didn't say anything. Even little stuff like that, which is now hopefully perceived as bigger stuff, all of that is in the record, is in somebody's mind and it's gonna come out.
0: And what you're saying too is it can be perception. It's a discussion. I often also hear people say, I don't really know Mark. So then they're reaching for something. You know, he looked at me funny in the hallway. These are human beings having conversations and you're either giving them to your point, good data on you to be presented in a way that you'd really like or not. And these are leaders directly to you, but also cross functionally in the whole org.
1: And I think it's important. I'll give one example of probably 25 years ago, my first job, I was somewhat a hypo, and I thought I was about to get a big assignment. And my boss, who was the C.H.R.O., came back to me and said, you know, we talked about it, but we decided not to give it to you. One of the senior leaders said that you never look him in the eye when you walk down the hallway. And that was one of the key decision factors. And as unfair as that may sound, someone interprets that as, okay, he doesn't connect with people or he's afraid of me. You can't judge other people for how they evaluate your behaviors. You need to engage in the behaviors that you think are going to be most productive. So those little things matter. But that also means you need to be more proactive in having whoever the decision makers are understand you, understand your career goals. Because if you want to succeed, it can't be, I hope they pick me for that project. You need to knock on their door, their virtual door, and say, Hey, Mary, I'm hearing a bit of a buzz about Singapore. I don't know if we're going there or not, but... I would love to have that opportunity. Can we talk about that? You need to proactively manage that part of your career because if there are blanks that you're letting other people fill in, they might not fill them in with the answers that you want.
0: What's something that you have learned or something you've taken advantage of that's really helped you throughout your career experience to pivot or navigate your own career?
1: I've always valued simple, powerful advice, and I got these two words of simple, powerful advice back in my Hewitt associate days. Hewitt's now owned by Aon for folks who've never heard of Hewitt, and the individual said, Mark, if you want to be successful in consulting, you need to be a likable expert, likable expert. And now each of those two words has a huge kind of decision tree below it. Okay, what does likeable mean? What does expert mean? But that really captures the essence. You can be really smart and knowledgeable, but not be someone who builds good relationships or presents themselves in a way that people want to interact with. That expertise means nothing. You can be a really great guy or great gal, but not have a lot of content. Well, people are going to invite you out for a beer, but they're not going to pay you any money for anything combine those two factors and that's the at the heart of what allows some people to be effective in that field so i love simple models that's one of the simplest but it's unbelievably powerful if you make it practical and apply it every day
0: i love that (laughs) that's fantastic is there another piece of career advice something that might have stayed with you throughout your career something that you would share with us
1: This is going to sound like advice that only an introvert would love. And it probably is because we tend to absorb things that agree with our self-view. I did have someone early in my career say, essentially, depend on no one. You're in charge of your own career. And in many ways, that's what's channeled through eight steps. And that's not intended to be no one else is dependable or you shouldn't ask for help. But at the end of the day, you need to be in charge of you. And hopefully other people will help you and do great things for you and you'll help other people, but we can't rely on other people to manage our lives or especially our careers for us. You need to take the accountability and have a plan to say, this is who I want to be. And I'm going to work harder towards that every single day. So don't depend on others for your success.
0: Mark, thank you so much. We covered so many areas and, this is, you know, probably three podcasts in one, but thank you, thank you. We know it's science and database, which is really awesome, but then it's full of insights and stories, practical advice for us. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Mary. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon.